Welcome and thank you for joining this webinar. Uh, this is the August edition of our chest wellness webinar series. And again, our topic today is strategies to combat stress and fatigue. The COVID-19 pandemic has created significant disruption in our personal and professional lives over the last six months. And I think it's fair to say that physicians and our interprofessional team members practicing chest medicine have really been on the front lines of this battle. I think the countless extra hours have passed off, have, have, uh, have paid off, at least going into the summer, but many of us already are facing a second wave of cases in many areas of the United States, and the fall and cold and flu season is, is still to come. There's clearly a lot more work that needs to be done in the month ahead. I don't think anybody would debate the fact that physicians are resilient people, but they're still people. The epidemic of burnout in healthcare providers has been well documented prior to the current pandemic, and the additive effect of this unique pandemic-induced stress is still being documented globally. So in response to this, in July, CHESS started a, a series of monthly webinars to discuss the science of sustaining high performance, to provide our members with a practical approach to support individual, team, and organizational health during these challenging times. We've also created a public wellness resource center on the CHEST website. If you could advance to the next slide, please. This just shows you the, the homepage for this. And if you're interested in checking it out, you can scan the QR code on the left-hand side that will, direct, that will take you directly to that page. So on our wellness center, we have new and regularly updated resources to help you recover at the end of an exhausting day and keep you at your best, both at work and at home. My name is Alex Niven. I'm a practicing pulmonary and critical care physician and the chair of this initiative. And it is my pleasure today to welcome our fantastic panel of faculty experts to talk about strategies to combat stress and fatigue. Um, first of all, I'd like to call on my co-moderator, Ritwick Agarwal. Thank you, Alex. Um, I'm Ritwik Agarwal. Uh, I'm one of the assistant professors of medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. I practice sleep medicine and pulmonary and critical care medicine and have been involved in the care of uh, COVID-19 patients too. And I will be the co-moderator of this session. Anjali, do you wanna go next? Absolutely, thank you, Alex. Uh, I wanna first start with kudos and congratulations to you and your whole team for the in-time intervention that you've created for the extended chest community. So thank you. And I'm, it's an absolute honor to uh, work with you on this and others. And I'm Anjali Bagra. I'm a practicing internist at Mayo Clinic Rochester. I'm also the chair for diversity, diversity inclusion and equity at Mayo Clinic Rochester. In my clinical practice, I spend a lot of time with patients, colleagues and learners on stress management and resiliency. So I actually get to practice stress management and resiliency with the patients as consults in the clinic. Um, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here with all of you today. Thank you so much and welcome. Michael, do you wanna go next? Sure, um, Michael Grandner. I am the, uh, I'm an associate professor in psychiatry at the University of Arizona. Um, I'm the director of the Sleep and Health Research Program here and the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Clinic here. So I'm a clinical psychologist by training, not a chest physician uh, or any kind of physician. Um, but as a psychologist, uh, I do 
work with these issues with patients all the time in terms of stress management and how it impacts sleep. Um, and so I'm really excited for this, uh, this seminar. Hopefully it could be helpful. And certainly last but not least, Barb, do you want to introduce yourself as well? Hi, everybody. Thank you for being here. I uh, am a retired professor emeritus uh, in the uh, Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep at the University of Kentucky, and I established and ran a sleep center at the University of Kentucky for 36 years, but I have been retired for two years, and my heart goes out to you. Thank you so much. So a few housekeeping notes before we move into our conversation. So uh, you can see here our disclosure slide uh, so for all the panelists today. Next slide, please. This webinar is approved for uh, category one credit. And if you are interested in claiming credit for this webinar, next slide, please. This just provides you with the instructions, and those instructions are also available in the, the webinar chat box that we have. And I just wanted to mention before we dive into this, again, this is a monthly webinar series. And so if you go to the Wellness Center, you'll see a list of upcoming webinar topics and dates, along with the opportunity to sign up for automated updates to arrive to your email to uh, give you uh, sort of uh, to give you up-to-date information in terms of new resources or information um, that is put together as this group moves forward. So with that, let's move into our discussion. So Anjali, I'd like to start with you. So personal confessions. My wife tells me that I've been working way too much the last six months, and I am, uh, I'm crabbier than I should be at home. At least that's what she tells me. And I'll admit that I'm, I feel tired from time to time. I really hate the word burnout. I think it's a catchphrase that gets flung around by far too many people to, to make excuses for far too many things. But uh, I don't really know where I kind of fall on the spectrum and if I should worry about things and what I should need to do about it. Um, you've already told me that you deal with this stuff all the time. And despite the fact that, uh, that we work in the same institution, we don't cross paths nearly as much as I, I, as, as I would like. So I, I'm going to take a few minutes up front to ask me, well, what do you do with people like me? And, and what sort of advice can you give me in the middle of this craziness? Because I'm pretty sure the craziness is not going to go away. Well, first off, thank you for your confession, Alex. Um, I need to meet with your wife because I hope my husband can make a similar confession um, openly. So, and the other thing is that you're not alone. I would say that in general, you listed earlier that within healthcare, we, are, we were already amidst this epidemic, if you will, of burnout. And by the way, we are not alone in this. There are other professions where we see similar levels of burnout. However, in the relatively acute phase with the pandemic, which, which is oddly globally sort of unifying when it comes to the pandemic-induced stress, and obviously every, every pocket handles it differently, but we are all together in this. Irrespective of the fact that I teach this, I experience the stress. And... Uh, Really, I just practice what I preach, try to, because I don't want to be a hypocrite, but it's not easy. By any means, this is not a destination that we reach. 
But what's important in this is awareness and intentionality. So being aware that, yes, we are stressed. Because medicine specifically, and I would say critical care, we are rock stars. This is a rock star culture. You know, we, uh, there are no chances. We give it our best. Um, and in, in the ICU environment, I have to admit, that was one of my best and most motivation-provoking um, rotations in my residency. Um, but, you know, it needs, it needs high performance at all times. And human brain fatigues. Human brain has limitations just by design. So uh, this isn't anything that you're experiencing alone. You're not the only one. We are all in it together. But we all come, you know, we all have different levels of awareness of it. And we all practice regulation in different ways. So we are diverse, yet we are unified in the experience. So the way I phrase it is, you know, we all are in different boats, but we are in the same storm. Alex, do you want to unmute yourself? I do. So let me press you a minute for some practical recommendations. So I've had a bad day. I come home. I still want to be the best that I can be for my family. And I want to make sure that by the time I go to work the next day, that I have done what I should to kind of, you know, recover so that I can, I can still be at my best for my patients and my colleagues. So what, what sort of advice would you give me there in terms of actionable stuff that I should think about? Right. Thank you for that question, because I think that's where we drive difference, because awareness is not enough. In other words, intent is not enough. We need to make an impact in our personal lives, in our professional lives. So both of those. And so I'm a big fan of life-work integration versus work-life balance. And that can happen if we, if we practice cognitive flexibility. What do I mean by that? Certainly, you know, in the setting of the epidemic, many of us were in denial at the beginning. You know, we weren't sure, is this real? How much are we going to be in it? But, you know, quickly we realized that this is something that's here to stay. While at the beginning, it seemed like an acute stressor, you know, it's going to come and go. We know that's not the case. It's here. The lingering effects will stay. And so it only makes sense for us to wrap our heads around this with an intention and a plan. You know, how are we going to remain in the game, whether it's our professional field and our personal field? So with that background, I'm going to jump to your question about how do I reclaim the joy that I deserve in my life, despite all the challenges I had at work? And, and for this, Alex, something that I routinely teach my patients, colleagues, and practice myself is a practice of zooming in. So most of like, whether it's stress, lack of sleep, long hours of work, challenging scenarios, um, crucial conversations, ethical dilemmas at work, all of that kind of spreads our awareness inside our heads and we become focused very inward. In other words, we go through what we call an amygdala hijack at work where our stress center just kind of takes over. And don't get me wrong, there are advantages of that because we have evolutionary advantage. With that, you know, we can, we can avoid danger very quickly. So we can act in the moment in the ICU setting, a fight or flight. What do I need to do? But what happens over time is that mode kind of builds up. And if you've had that on for 12 hours, that fight or flight, and now you're going home, that lingers on. And if you get into your work environment and the first thing you happen to say to your wife was something that she didn't care to hear, 
That's not a good scenario. So one way to avoid that is to reset and to zoom in and, and just kind of remind yourself, this is where I need to move my cognition, cognitive awareness. I am going back to, and this is what I do. It's a two minute practice of, um, of not improving your loved ones, not trying to improve anything about your um, home life the minute you get back home and just zoom in and take those two minutes to create what's called affiliative presence with your loved ones. And that can be life altering. And the two key components of how you can meet and greet your loved ones is reminding yourself that they are precious. And the fact that we are all transient, right? I mean, we see it every day at work with our patients, with, but we don't activate that of awareness every time we meet with our loved ones when we get back home. So activate that awareness is step one. We are all transient. I'm so grateful I get to see my loved ones today. The second awareness is that, now this is harder. And when you do it, your wife and your kids are gonna look at you with suspicion. But the second one is don't improve anything about them when you get back home. So activate that you're transient and do not improve. And then say something creative when you meet with them. Look them in their eye. Give them the gift of affiliative connectedness and relationships versus logistical. I have to admit, my husband's a physician as well. We have two kids. And at 4 p.m., we have these frantic texts. Who's picking the kids? Who's getting dinner? And who's going to take care of activities? So it's very logistical. You know, we sometimes carry a very organizational sort of approach in relationships, and that robs us of joy rather than reclaim joy. So when you meet with your family, when you get back home, reclaim your joy, zoom in, two minutes, don't improve, and just connect. Nice. Not a difficult practice. I think that's fantastic. Uh, so just as a quick administrative note, uh, please use the QA uh, chat box if you have questions. Put those in and we'll answer them as we go along. We want this to be as interactive as we can um, for, uh, for all the folks here. Um, so I, I'm, uh, I'm going to turn to you, Ritwick. You know, this seems like good practical advice. Uh, how good are we as health professionals in terms of following this sort of practical advice? Alex, so what I, <clears throat> before this particular webinar, I asked some of my trainees how their sleep is. How can we, um, how can we improve our sleep with this pandemic going across uh, the horizon? And my trainee said that even though the work hours are long, the sleep is impacted independently of what we we hope for, we, we want to have a pretty good sleep. And in this particular way, uh, we decided to do a survey uh, from, for the AC, from the ACCP membership and we found pretty good results. So let me just jump right into the survey. And the first question we asked uh, from the membership is, what do you think about this particular myth? I can be very functional with only five to six hours of sleep. And on Twitter, what we found that about half of our membership, about 50%, they don't sleep the recommended seven to eight hours of sleep. Some participants actually mentioned that they get about four hours of sleep. And the similar, uh, we got on Instagram where we had about 127 votes and 
more than 60% felt that they're not getting the adequate amount of sleep. So let me ask Barb, um, how is insufficient sleep impacting the well-being of our healthcare workers? That's a good question, and it, because it's well-studied, it took a great deal of data to result in work our restrictions for house officers finally implemented in 2011, that would not have happened without abundant data. And so we know, and this, these data are specific to healthcare workers, we know that, that sleep restriction or insufficient sleep results in some pretty bad things for doctors, including impaired judgment, impaired executive function, delayed reaction times, uh, and other things that are uh, less tangible, like interpersonal conflict. There are older studies, too, documenting that performance on both cognitive and technical uh, things is impaired with insufficient sleep, which is variously defined as less than five hours and 24, or less than six, usually. Uh, for example, older data shows that people miss uh, abnormalities on ECGs after a night of call compared to not on call or their suturing ability. Uh, these studies were done with oranges. Thank no, no animals were harmed or even humans. Uh, their uh, suturing ability is impaired with sleep deprivation. So we know that all of those things are impaired when people are sleep deprived, but probably the best documented consequence of sleep deprivation is car crash. Uh, and you guys are probably aware of a study uh, that was published in the New England Journal in 2016 uh, by a surgical group. The surgeons really pushed back on this sleep deprivation uh, work hour restriction idea. Uh, and it was, it was really an ambitious and in many ways well done study where Bill and Moria reported that compared to the, what was recommended by the ACGME at 80 hour 80 only, let me say that again, quote, only 80 hours uh, a, a week work, um, compared that to less uh, restrictive work, like basically ad lib for older residents. There were no differences, important uh, differences in certain carefully selected outcomes, which included things like death and failure to rescue. They did not, however, look at the effect on the house officer. They did not look at the house officer's interpersonal conflict or their car crash or their risk of needle uh, sticks, uh, inadvertent needle sticks, which have all been shown to be increased with sleep deprivation. Uh, so this is a pretty important consequence just in terms of our functioning, but also in terms of our risk to ourselves. Thank you, Barb. Um, I think this is a good segue to one of the common myths we have, and it's somewhat controversial too. People say I can catch up for, for a few hours at the weekend, so I can sleep three, four, five hours over the weekdays uh, when I'm busy and once I'm off over the weekend. Um, I can sleep in, I can wake up at noon, one, whatever I want to, and that way I can get my average seven to eight hours of sleep. So Michael, what are your thoughts about this particular school of thought? Yeah, I think an important issue here, and, and to really build on, on what Dr. Phillips was talking about, that there's saying that there's hundreds of studies that show that 
people who are getting six hours or especially less on a typical night have worse outcomes is an understatement. There's thousands of studies. Um, I, and I don't know how many times people think that they're the exception to the rule. Everyone thinks they're the exception to the rule. But chances are you're probably not. Um, and 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 it also goes back to this issue that when you look in the laboratory, for example, and you look at sleep deprivation studies, um, there's a huge disconnect between subjective and objective impairments, where you can easily see objective impairments that accumulate over time. It's not even it's not even a day or two of poor sleep that's the problem. It's not it's not about well, I got a, only a few hours of sleep for a couple nights in a row, and I'm feeling kind of out of it. The impairments there actually are probably more subjective than objective, but it's the cumulative loss over weeks and months that causes the, this intense impairment. And it, it's totally out of line with subjective reports where people have no idea how impaired they are. Um, it just cross the board. Um, and then when you talk about, about physicians, the one exception you have here, and, and, and Dr. Vils mentioned this, was sort of professional overlearned behaviors where, you're, where you can do them sort of automatically, you tend not to make you tend not to make quite as many mistakes. But when you need something that requires some creativity, focus, and, and responding, especially something like driving, um, this is where you get these issues. And so then you get people who are trying to um, get by in as little sleep as they can for five nights in a row, and hoping that they make up for it after a couple of days. Now, if you look at the data, what you see is. It's sort of, that's sort of like saying, how much salad do I need to eat on the weekend um, to make up for eating nothing but cheeseburgers all week? So it's like, if you are eating nothing but cheeseburgers all week, eat as much salad as you can on the weekends. I'm not going to tell you, don't, get, don't, don't do this slightly healthier thing on the weekends, but that's not really the problem. There's also, uh, I should point out that there's accumulating data now in laboratory studies where that they sleep deprive people for a sleep deprived work week of say five nights, give them two nights of recovery. You see what you normally see in these studies is by the second night, they look back to baseline. But when they reinitiate sleep deprivation, this has only been done in a couple of studies. When they reinitiate sleep deprivation, what they get is they don't start from baseline. They start where they left off. It was not a recovery. It was a pseudo recovery. It was a masked recovery. Your body was like, thank you. I'm going to give you some better uh, performance uh, as a reward for giving me what I want, even though I'm not there yet. Um, so it's really important to know that there's, there's two sides to this coin about sleeping in on the weekends. On the one hand, like if that's all you're going to do, if, if that's the best you can do, I'm certainly not going to say don't do that. But it's probably not going to be enough to cause the kind of recovery that you're really looking for. Does that make, does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense, Michael. Yeah. And I agree that we should really uh, look for a more consistent schedule as much as possible, seven days and, a week. And a lot of people in these professional settings just can't. Like, it's not possible to have a regular schedule every day, especially when you're working, you know, these long shifts. Um, what I would say to do, though, is take what you can get do what you can and build regularity in ways that might not always um, that might not always be obvious. So maybe you have a routine you do every time before you go to bed, um, and just do that routine every time. Maybe as long as you're sleeping in the same place, do do certain things that are that are familiar that you can help short shortcut that process. Um, and speaking to this idea of disconnecting, when people aren't able to sleep during the week, I would say you know sometimes it's the work schedule itself, but sometimes it's just people's inability to disconnect. And I would challenge um, all the people 
uh, on here to think about the, the difference between relaxation and distraction is that relaxation is an active process where distraction is a passive process. Relaxation is like exercise. Um, exercise is an active process. If you're not actively trying to disengage, what you're mostly doing is sort of distracting yourself. And, and then what, what happens is you find it harder to wind down. Um, so I, I would also think that a lot of people, we've done these interventions in, in athletes and in others who, are very, who have a lot of time restrictions. Sometimes it's not about finding more time in the day. Sometimes it's about getting them to, to get more uh, efficient sleep at night so that they, ha that they get more time during the day. They're more efficient and they find the time. So I want to jump to one of the questions that, uh, that just came through a little while ago. Uh, so this is from Carl, and, uh, and he's pointing out the fact that individual strategies, which is really the focus of our conversation today, isn't really very much good if you're in an organization that doesn't support that in terms of its infra infrastructure or framework at all. And I want to kick this back to Anjali because I, I think she works a little bit in this space as well. Yes, I want to thank Carl for that observation and that question. And uh, while I discussed one specific uh, tactic with you, Alex, uh, I also want to uh, sow the seeds here. Going back to Michael's point, routine is extremely important for stress management as well. You know, it's not just sleep, but having a routine despite a big disruption uh, is extremely important for mental relaxation and mental reclamation. So I, I, I would re-emphasize that routine for stress management. And, and then I would say the three big areas in which at an individual level, what we are seeing from some of the survey data that's emerging is three domains. And the, and the, and the, and the themes and the domains that, um, that are coming out is fitness, and I know uh, Barb loves exercise, and um, I join her in that. I may not be able to get as much as I want, but again, routine. So physical fitness, emotional fitness, spiritual fitness, immune fitness, especially in such times which relates to diet. I think it's critically important, especially right now with schools reopening and many of the schools being distant learning. For those who are parents here on the call, that is a huge stressor. So, you know, as you apply these um, into your lives, that's what the kids are gonna learn too. So it's extremely important. That's a practical tip, I would say. The other is faith. You know, we all can do our best. There are things beyond our control. And I'm going to touch on organizational structure because I could be the best resilient individual in my domain, in what I control. But if my institution, my team, you know, my coworkers, my organization does not prioritize a culture of employee well-being, um, a culture of belonging, then a lot of my efforts when I come to work cause moral distress because then I'm not working within the locus of my priority and my core value. So faith is extremely important and people practice faith in many different ways. Okay. Like, I mean, I am not very religious. My practice is spiritual, but having a, some sort of a practice where you reclaim your faith in your work, in your home life, it is extremely important, okay? And then finally, family, okay? When I say family, it's not just our loved ones. It is our work family. It's the organizational family. It's really the, the word family encompasses a much bigger 
construct here, which is where organizational values come. And uh, I think now more than ever, it is incredibly important to play uh, at the same level when we talk of individual strategies and when we talk of team strategies or organizational strategies. I, and this is not to, one is not more or better than the other. Both are required. These are all pieces of a puzzle that need to come together so that we move forward in the most resilient way and give our best performance. So from an organizational standpoint, there are several strategies that are incredibly important and for organizations to invest. There's, there's research around this. There is, uh, it's been written about uh, our prior CEO and president, Dr. Um, Noseworthy, along with Dr. Tate Shanafelt, um, who was at Mayo now at Stanford. You know, they outline nine critical strategies essential for organizations to maintain resilience. And uh, I'll just list some that you can take back to your teams. The most important that jumps out at me is having resilient leadership, you know, especially in times of stress, distress, uh, calamity, in high-stress environments like the MICU. You need to have leaders who can pivot, who can, who can grow from adversity and setback versus get pushed forward. So resilient leadership is extremely important. And I would say the key components of resilient leadership would be leadership that's authentic and over communicates. Now, I know it's hard when we put ourselves out there, when we communicate. I can tell you, I was joking with Alex, Barb, and the rest of us. My biggest stress coming into the webinar was, how do I make this Yeti mic work that uh, Sam was very kind to um, mail out to me. But I felt confident because within the team, we over-communicated. Like I'm giving you an end-time example of how critical communication is, good communication. So I would say that's key for resilient organizational leadership, resilient leadership. And then one more really important, valuable tactic is building organizational resilience. In our current pandemic, one of the most effective ways to do that is to build peer support. Now this webinar is a classic example of peer support. We are leaning on each other. We are talking aloud about what are the things that we need to do collectively. And, and we're being open about our vulnerability. I try to meditate, I can't. I, you know. So peer support and embracing and leaning on each other is key to developing organizational resilience. I do wanna give, um, I want to um, highlight uh, everybody's uh, attention towards the resources that have been uh, uploaded for this webinar. The CDC link is excellent. Please visit uh, that website if you haven't. I couldn't emphasize more the importance of psychological first aid, a link to which is also provided in the resources for this webinar. That is an outstanding resource uh, that talks about how to build team resilience, organizational resilience, in addition to individual resilience. So there's a couple of different questions that have come in. I, I wanna pause and address those before we, we continue with the conversation. I wanna thank Casey for a really nice tangible uh, example of what Michael was talking about before in terms of routines. Um, so, uh, so here there's a discussion about using uh, meditation, using an app on the phone. We've actually got an example of that on the Wellness Center uh, and, and then a, a warm rice sock and, and just 
those things and building in that routine for for uh, to just to help prepare you to get to sleep and let go of the of the the stressors of the day. Um, in terms of quality of sleep, and I'm going to jump a little bit from our outline here. Uh, we have Laura, who's actually recovering from COVID-19 and is feeling very fatigued and worried about the quality of her sleep. I'm not aware of much data in terms of, of a, of a post-viral syndrome from COVID that could explain this, but any things to think about in terms of quality of uh, maximizing quality of sleep in general? Uh, this is Barb, and I would jump in here with, um, with exercise. Uh, and this is not just subjective improvement in the quality of sleep. Exercise is the most potent uh, consolidator and promoter of sleep outside of the realm of pharmacology. Uh, it increases the deepest stages of sleep, which is stage non-REM non slow wave sleep, which is what everybody wants to have. Uh, it reduces arousals, it shortens sleep latency. Almost any measure of quality sleep is enhanced by exercise and it does not have to be marathon running. This has been demonstrated with yoga. This has been demonstrated with gentle short walks, almost any kind of exercise and that's extremely important. It is possible that outdoor exercise is better than indoor exercise because of light exposure or lack of light are, is a really important cue that we underestimate uh, the importance of in our lives. Darkness promotes sleep, lightness pr promotes alertness. And when we spend 24 hours in a fluorescent lighted ICU, it's really not surprising, uh, for example, that our sleep gets messed up. And if you've been sick with COVID and you're up and down all night, that's just another aspect to consider. So I would definitely, I would definitely say exercise and I would also say, we're talking about not getting enough sleep. And I want to draw that line sharply now between sleep deprivation and insomnia, right? There is a huge difference between a person who only gets six hours of sleep because she's stressed out. She gets in bed and spends nine hours, but she's only able to sleep six of the hours that she's in bed because she's stressed or she's anxious or she's depressed. And the guy that only gets six hours of sleep and goes, hey, I'm a surgeon. Surgeons don't need sleep, right? And I got to do a case. Uh, so for those of you who think you don't need sleep, I would say get over it. But for those of you who really are trying your best to sleep and you can't sleep, I would very strongly recommend exercise regularization of your schedule as much as you possibly can. Avoid caffeine after breakfast, all that usual stuff. And then cognitive behavioral therapy and or meditation, which cognitive behavioral therapy is available online now in little bite-sized chunks that can, that can really help. Yeah, strong... I bet... oh, yeah. oh yeah, no, I, I, I just want to support all of that. Um, and just to remind everybody that cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia is recommended by uh, ACP as the first line treatment for insomnia. I don't think ACCP has a guideline on insomnia, but ACP does, and, they, and, and it's recommended as first line. ASM recommends as a first line treatment. Pretty much any time where there is a recommendation for insomnia, CBTI is recommended as a first line treatment above pharmacotherapy for two main reasons. One, um, all the meta-analyses show that it's extremely effective and that it has very few risks. Um, and two, 
comparative meta-analyses generally show it to be at least as good, if not actually better than um, whatever the comparator pharmacotherapy agent, even benzos. So um, that's why it's recommended. So even though it's not um, pharmacotherapy, it, it, it's based on, on a lot of evidence. So there, there are ways to make use of this without necessarily even seeing a therapist. So the difference between insufficient sleep and insomnia, it's a big gray area, but here's a rule of thumb for you to think about. If it's taking you more than 30 minutes to fall asleep, or you're awake for more than 30 minutes during the night trying to sleep and unable to, and that's happening, say, three nights a week or so, and it's causing some sort of impairment, you'd probably meet criteria for an insomnia disorder diagnosis. And, and the thing to know about insomnia disorder is that um, it, it's a million things can cause difficulty sleeping, stress probably being one of the most prominent um, and also try and having dysregulated schedules is also a major risk factor for developing insomnia. Um, but what persists over time is this idea of a conditioned arousal to the bed. This has been shown for decades that, that what happens is by spending all this time awake in bed, the bed becomes like the dentist chair where it's like you get in there and all of a sudden, and, and nothing has happened to you yet. You're already anxious. Um, because you don't know if sleep is coming. So my, 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 um, the biggest tip I can give you is do what you can. Everyone should be doing this, but especially if you're having some problems with insomnia, is stimulus control. If you're in bed and you can't sleep, get out of bed. Being in bed should result in either sleep imminently or you eject. Um, you don't want the bed to be the place where you're doing all of these other things like thinking and worrying and tossing and turning. You want the bed to become a cue for sleep. Um, it's actually, it's, it's, it's the same as if you're trying to potty train a two-year-old or housebreak your dog, you need to create the scaffolding around the behavior so that you can promote the behavior you want to teach your body to do the thing you want it to do. And the way to do that with stimulus control is you do not go get into bed unless you think sleep is possibly imminent. And if you're in bed, you only stay in bed as long as sleep is possibly imminent. If you're, if you're in there for 20, 30 minutes, it isn't, you get up, um, and when do you go back to bed? Well, you wait until you want to try again. It could be five minutes or it could be a couple hours, whatever it takes. Um, but you're investing in your future sleep quality, even if you're getting less sleep right now. It's not about maximizing your sleep tonight. It's about preventing the development of worse problems later. Michael, I, yes. I, I want to add one more resource for our listeners and the website users. We have uh, put the link of one of the app and it's a CBTI app developed by Departments of Veteran Affairs. It's free to use. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things which I use for a lot of my patients. You have to enter some data, your quality of sleep, you how much you sleep, how, how much time you spend actually fall, staying asleep, and a few other data. And then this, the app itself gives guidelines how what to improve in the sleep. And this is a very good app, and it's, it's available to uh, for free of cost. So it's one yeah. of the resources we can use. So Casey's asking a couple of questions in the QA box. And I think this really hits a big area that we wanted to touch on during the webinar. So I'm going to go to that, which is, you know, I'm an ICU provider. I spend 50% of the time in, the, in my, of my time in the ICU, and that means night shifts. And so, you know, how to effectively because I, I can't maintain that routine all the time because I got to switch from days to nights and then back to days. So 
what's the best strategies to mitigate that acute sleep deprivation when I go on to my first shift? Uh, how do I maximize my sleep and, and get exercise and do all these things that you're telling me to do in between night shifts? And then what's the best way for me to shift back to days? So I, maybe I'll, I'll pass it to you, Michael, first, or Barb, you want to take it first? Either of you. Let me, let me, let me, because we, we haven't talked about caffeine, and we really should. Because let's face it, despite your very best efforts and your devotion and commitment to sleep, you're, you're going you're gonna to miss out, and you're going to need to be able to function your very best. Now, we did send some questions out to uh, anybody who wanted to take them in advance of this, and, and many of you actually voted on these questions. For example, the people who are listening to this webinar know that chronic use of sleeping pills is associated with death and with cancer. You already know that. But when, I, when we asked the question, how much caffeine does it take to wake you up as much as the starting dose that we use to treat somebody with narcolepsy, hardly any of you voted. Um, but we gave you the choice of several different doses of caffeine, uh, including that there isn't any dose of caffeine that works as well as the uh, starting dose of a drug for narcolepsy. But y'all were afraid to vote on that. So let me just tell you, the answer is 600 milligrams of caffeine, which is quite a lot. For example, um, if you just get some drip coffee, you know, at Waffle House, it might have 100 or 125 milligrams of caffeine in it. But the Espresso Grandi Starbucks 16 ounce has 550 milligrams of caffeine. And nobody is paying me to say this, but it is, that is this is not a coincidence that there is a Starbucks in every hospital lobby, sometimes two, and every airport lounge. So when you're sleep deprived and you cannot avoid having to drive to take your life or somebody else's life in your own hands, get as much caffeine as you can. Cola won't do it. Tea won't do it. Having said that, I will say that there is huge variability in human metabolism of caffeine, and there are very there are very few biologic differences that we have been able to uh, identify between people who have insomnia and people who don't. But one of the differences is people who report insomnia are slow metabolizers of caffeine. So it can be a double-edged sword uh, for some of you. And my best advice to you would be figure out how much caffeine it takes for you and how long it works in your, in your body. And I also want to echo something that Anjali said earlier in one of our calls before this, which is put your own mask on first and your mask might not look like your coworkers mask. What it takes to help you get your best night's sleep or for you to recover from sleep deprivation may not be the same thing as somebody else. Uh, this, is, this is really the time to be true to you. Michael, I want to build on to that, uh, the question which, which we asked earlier is, you know, we all do these shifts. Some work from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., some work from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., or a combination in which we spend, we sleep outside of our usual sleeping hours. And how can we best utilize our sleep health when we cannot really change our schedule? So if we are on schedule, say working for uh, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. for two nights in a row, and then we are next flip to daytime shift, 
how do we um, work around the circadian rhythm problem? That's a question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the way I see it is this is, this is in the same domain as occupational toxic exposures. You know, some, some professions have systematic exposure to all kinds of, of toxic environments that lead to increased risk for all kinds of things. Um, and we have systems in place to try and mitigate that. Um, you know, people can wear protective masks and welders wear masks and people wear gloves, but, you know, it's hard to wear a mask that protects you against shift work. You know, it, there's no glove that protects you from shift work. Um, and I mean, it's sort of like having a job that forces you to smoke. And so what are we going to do about that? I mean, so, I mean, it'd be great if we had, if we didn't have a job that forced you to smoke, but that's how we work. So we've got to work with what we got. I think the first thing we need to say is that um, we all know that keeping a consistent schedule is better than not, even if it's at night, but in, in the real world, that doesn't actually happen. So what I would say to do is um, recognize, first of all, that there is probably going to be no solution that works perfectly that alleviates all of the problems and just have that expectation off the bat. Second of all, um, I think that still trying to get as much of your um, sleep during the biological night as possible um, is, is ideal. And knowing that one to two nights of not getting um, all of your sleep during the biological night is probably not going to be world ending um, either. You can get some sleep during the day. It's possible to probably get a solid cycle of that well, it might take two to three hours really to get through it. Um, and then after that, during the day, after that, you might get some diminishing returns. Um, so you might want to plan for giving yourself enough time during the day that's isolated enough, maybe earplugs and an eye mask to keep, to, to keep any light and noise out when your body's looking for it during the day. Um, another thing to consider is the issue of duration of wakefulness and that um, the longer you're awake, just like with hunger, the longer you've gone since sleep, the quicker you're going to be able to get to sleep. So you probably don't want to sleep twice for any extended period of time within the same 24-hour window, um, at least if one of those is more than two to three hours, it's going to be very difficult. So you might want to budget for that. Um, think of it as, as you're going on a long car trip, and when you're dealing with the sleepiness, sometimes it's an issue of um, sometimes it's an issue of you, you can go so far until your gas tank is flashing on empty and then you got to panic to look for a gas station. Um, and sometimes it's like, you know what? I know I'm not going to make it the whole way. So let's, let's stop somewhere cool for lunch and fill up along the way, even though I'm not on empty. And I think a lot of shift workers do better with that method, knowing that they're going to be awake for long periods of time, but doing things like scheduling naps ahead of time, planning when you're going to sleep, as opposed to going as long as you can until you drop down and then dealing with the consequences afterwards. Um, see what else? Caffeine again, light is really important. Getting light when you want to send a daytime signal, um, avoiding it when you're trying to prepare yourself for sleep, getting blue blockers, even if it's daylight out uh, for a period of time before you're planning on sleeping during the day would probably be a great idea to help suppress any, um, 
uh, to avoid any kind of melatonin suppression, even though you won't be secreting much during the day, it'll at least maybe help send a nighttime signal, especially if it's later in the day. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's mitigation strategies and, and there's no good solution, um, but there, there are certain things we can do to help. Michael, I'll just add to that because I see a lot of patients who are shift workers and are experiencing a whole lot of stress because of lack of a routine and inability to sleep. So one approach that we've utilized is just having structured plans for shifts. So when I'm on days, I'm on plan A. When I'm on whatever, I'm on plan D. And then they have focused activities within those uh, well-outlined plans beforehand. So in other ways, to just reframe what you said, you know, just defining what it is that you can control or you do control despite your schedule being all over and just preempting that and coming up with, a, with so many different schedules. It's better to plan ahead than to react to panic in a, in a situation. I'd like to just chime in one other thing about the whole circadian uh, thing. Old literature used to say, don't exercise too close to bedtime. This is a myth that we really need to debunk. Uh, and it, there are good data now that show that people who exercise anytime, even if they wake up in the middle of the night and can't go back to sleep, sleep better than people who don't exercise. I yeah, I think, I think that literature got, got blown out of proportion. It was, it was like, if you are going to be doing intense VO2 max for sustained periods of time at the exact, at your circadian nadir, yes, it can phase shift you at least a little bit. But that's not, that, that shouldn't have been jumped to the conclusion of like, don't exercise. And actually, when you talk to the people who did that work, they roll their eyes at the people who are interpreting it. They're like, that's not what we said. That's yeah. not what we did. It's just, yeah. it's, you know, so, so yeah, don't, don't worry about that. So I just want to, uh, a similar thing happened actually recently. One of my trainees who was on night shift, he asked me what, what can, what strategies I can do to maximize my productivity. And I just gave a simple set of recommendations. So in the night, make sure you're in a dark, in a very lighted place so that your, your pineal gland is getting exposed to bright lights. And you go home in the morning, put sun blockers, the light blockers, dark shades. And then uh, when you're at home, when you're sleeping, try to sleep full seven to eight hours. You try to sleep with dark uh, blinds and, and, and earplugs. And then on the weekend, when you're off, continue the same schedule and continue it until you're on night shift. And it really helped him. It is something um, which covers most of the aspects, what we can do to mitigate uh, shift work disorder. Mm -hmm. And Casey um, brought up something that I think is important that we didn't talk about, which is melatonin, uh, um, which tells your body that it's dark. Melatonin doesn't work for insomnia due to stress because your, your stressed out body knows that it's dark. But if melatonin has any group of people that it works for, it is shift workers. Uh, so maybe three to five milligrams. Again, the timing of melatonin is very controversial. I would say before you want to sleep. But if you can get an hour before you want to sleep, that might be better. And Barb, did you, do you want to address dose? Did you mention that? Oh, uh, three to five milligrams usually. But Michael probably knows more about this than I do. Well, yeah. So dosing and timing melatonin is tricky. Um, 
higher doses don't work better. Um, it doesn't necessarily, you usually get, there's usually two kinds of doses. There's a phase shifting dose, which is like really low, about a half to one milligram. And that would be like a few hours before you're planning on going to bed. But I'm not sure about that in shift workers, but the three to five milligram dose, about 30 to 60 minutes before you're planning to go to sleep, that's known as, that, that's, that's usually used as a little more of a, a little bit more of a sleep induction and sleep consolidation dose. And that might be enough of a bolus, at, at, even if it's at the wrong time to sort of jumpstart the system. But going higher than that, most of the time you're getting diminishing returns, if anything, just more side effects. It, it's, not, it's not like, a, it's not like a, um, a sedative medication where more is more sedation. It's, it's just you're hitting a, a critical window or you're just getting more side effects. So I want to ask one targeted question to Ritwick, and, uh, and then in the few minutes we have left, I'm just going to open it up to the panel for closing comments because I think right now we've caught up in terms of questions. So Ritwick, I had a fellow who told me that his favorite way to relax and get ready for, for bed after a night shift is to turn on the TV and, and drink one of his homebrewed IPAs. Good or bad idea? Not a good idea. When, uh, first of all, you know, like Michael mentioned, our bedroom is our sanctuary. So you have to respect it. Should be only for sleeping. So when we are watching TV, when we are working on our cell phone, when we are doing iPad, I work from you doing our notes from the daytime in the bed, the body really gets confused. The body thinks, okay, bed is not for sleeping. Bed is for pretty much everything. So watching TV is, is a big no-no for the sleep hygiene measures. Along the same lines, you know, late night alcohol or drink. Alcohol basically is a, is a sedative. It's similar to propofol. It works in GABA receptors, just not as potent. And it, it sedates us. But when we, are in, when we fall asleep because of alcohol, we actually uh, get very poor quality of sleep. The stages of sleep are disrupted. And we sort of get a withdrawal effect after three, four hours in the sleep. So the quality of sleep is really uh, impacted quite a lot. So for both the questions, I would say no to TV and no to the IPA. Yeah, TV is not there to help you fall asleep. It's there to help sell you stuff. Like that's what it's for. And so, I mean, if you look at, so a lot of people use TV as sort of a white noise in the background. If you need that, get a white noise machine. It's better than a TV. Because with the TV, you'll have bright commercials in the middle of the night to wake you up. Um, I, would, I would remember that the, the TV is, is not there as a sleep aid. Um, if you need noise, if you need a little bit of light, there are, safer, there are better ways of doing that than with the TV. Um, also, uh, with screens in general, people need to put their screens down. Um, someone once said, so there was, a, there was a, a Twitter thread a while ago saying, sleep, sleep people, what's your favorite sleep app? And my response was, my favorite sleep app is putting my phone down. Um, and and so, so that's another thing. So there's three issues. There's the light. There's the mental engagement. Like these, you have these endless feeds that just keep going and going um, that, that keep you engaged. They're meant to because they're there to sell you ads. And then the third thing is the distraction where, where people lose sense of the, of the passage of time. Like, half an hour gets sucked in and you, and you just blinked. And so these are the same people who say, I don't have time for sleep. Well, I just gave you a half an hour by putting that you didn't gain anything by this time. Um, so I, I would say this is the issue with screens and 
And, and, and I agree with alcohol, the data are pretty clear. It's probably the most used sleep drug in the world, but it's very poor at that. It might help you fall asleep a little bit faster, but it'll make the sleep you get generally worse quality. So for those struggling with stress-related sleep issues, I would say, uh, Michael, just building on what you said, stress keeps you engaged. It kind of keeps your default mode network of the brain going, and that's exactly. a big no-no. So to avoid that, what we, what we prescribe to our patients is dedicated worry time sometime earlier in the day. Like if you can't stop thinking about something and you must worry about something, and if you feel it's productive worrying, um, dedicate a time slot for yourself uh, way before the later half of the day, because otherwise it's really hard to stop that disengagement. If you find yourself getting into bed and your mind keeps going, this is the detachment you were supposed to do before you got in bed. Now you have no distractions. Your mind, this is the first chance your mind has where it has your attention, where you're not distracted by other things. You should do that outside of bed if you're going to do it anyway. Um, and, and remember, the difference between relaxation and distraction is relaxation is a deliberate process, like the worry time, you know, like planning ahead. Um, rather than just hoping for the best, getting into bed and hoping you're tired enough to knock out. You know, I am really, really regretting the fact that we've got one minute left in this hour because it has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, but I think in the, uh, in the interest of being respectful to our attendees and our panelists' time, I've got to bring this discussion to a close. Uh, I want to really thank this uh, fantastic group of faculty for a great conversation today. I have learned a lot and, uh, and I still feel like there's a lot more that I need to learn. So I'm going to go check out those links that we have associated with this um, webinar on the Wellness Center. Please, for the audience, if you enjoy this, uh, this webinar, uh, we have a series of monthly webinars coming up uh, addressing both team and organizational issues when it comes to wellness and fatigue management. And uh, along with a, a whole list of resources that we are rotating on a regular basis so that we provide you with the best information available to help you along this journey um, in this challenging pandemic time. So, uh, so with that, thank you very much. Appreciate you all joining and, uh, and, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.